Hello and welcome to the Idea to Startup podcast, where we hired a super smart agency to help us make the pod better. And they said we shouldn't have the same intro every week. So here we are trying out something new so that they know that I can take feedback. Idea to Startup is a weekly 20-ish minute podcast that helps people with startup ideas turn them into businesses that make sense. My goal each episode is for you to be pissed off with me because you have to listen with a notebook and a pen handy, and you can't just walk your dog and zone out. I'm Brian Scordato, this is Idea to Startup, and let's get to it. Today, we're going to help you get a product up and out in a weekend. I know we did this last week, but I made a huge mistake with last week's episode, a rookie mistake. I gave people tactics and hoped that they'd take those tactics and put them into action. I gave you the how when I knew full well that the what and the why are so much more important. Come on, Brian. Admittedly, the how was great. We talked through the logistics of building and testing a magical product in a weekend. We talked through what a magical product does. It knows your customer's most important goals and aspirations and understands the steps they take to getting there now, then somehow removes the hardest step. For early products, it's almost always you just manually doing that step for them. It still feels magical. The magic is the outcome you create, not the product itself. And this week, we'll talk about why absolutely no one took any of that advice. And we'll help you get going on a product this weekend, for real this time. But first, an example of what I was hoping to help people do last week. You can't be what you can't see, slash here. And by the end of the episode, we'll talk through how this founder did it. There's a company in Tacklebox that joined because they wanted to help restaurants source unique local ingredients. The founder had been a sous chef and had struggled finding these sorts of ingredients, particularly when the chef hoped to use them for a weekly or monthly special. He figured the problem was industry-wide and, in general, saw the opportunity for a much better marketplace where chefs could find high-quality, organic ingredients from local suppliers. To build a magical product, you've got to remove steps. So here is what the chef's step-by-step process looks like now. A chef decides on a special they'd like to add to the menu. This special might have ingredients that are unique or seasonal or hard to find, or might just be too expensive to get from their regular suppliers. So the restaurant has to search. They call other chefs, suppliers, markets, until they find the right ingredient at the right price, use a substitute product, or ditch the dish entirely. Our founder's product idea, the one you build and start over a weekend, was to solve this step to help chefs find the ingredients they needed, and maybe eventually build a better, more transparent marketplace between farms and suppliers and restaurants. So when a chef begins their search for ingredients for a special, our founder knew that he had to somehow be there and take that step off their hands. In general, your goal as a startup is to somehow appear as close as humanly possible to that moment of pain, the moment the customer makes a decision. The founder started doing this manually. He reached out to a bunch of chefs on Monday morning, historically an off day for chefs and the time they might start tinkering around with a new potential dish at their home. He asked what the upcoming specials were and what ingredients were hard to find. Here's a direct quote from the email. Hi, chef. Finding ingredients for dishes you don't normally feature is hard. I can find any item for you, fresh and local. What could you cook that would knock your customer's socks off? What aren't you cooking because you don't think you can get the right ingredients for it? 
Pick any ingredient and I'll send you a sample this week free of charge. A few hundred cold emails to chefs landed this founder a handful of phone calls, which converted into a couple of customers. And for the past month, he's been helping chefs source ingredients. He chats with them on Monday and searches suppliers and sends a potential inventory list on Wednesday. Most restaurants that he works with now just have an account with him. He orders on their behalf and sometimes even picks up and delivers what they need. This is manual, but it's working as long as you define work properly. Each week, he's creating relationships with chefs, farmers, and suppliers, learning what types of things chefs want and struggle to find, and learning the nuances of the supplier business and financial model. He's figuring out how and when restaurants want to pay, what they want help with, and what they definitely don't want help with, when they want stuff shipped, and how. Chefs have begun introducing the founder to other chefs. Suppliers have asked the founder if he can ask his network of chefs if they want deals on scallops or tuna or watercress when they have too much and it's about to go bad. The business has grown by a restaurant or two each week and this velocity is increasing and the founder adds a few farms and suppliers a month. On the product side, they're starting to scale a few things, mostly pushing restaurant interaction and logistics to an EA. But anything too scalable too early locks you in and that's bad. This first bit is about learning, becoming a domain expert, and the domain isn't food or ingredients, it's the people, their needs, urgency, willingness to pay, networks, and on and on. The most important currency for a startup, trust, is starting to flow. The whole point of this early product is insight, to understand your customer and their problems and how you can solve these problems better than anyone. This hodgepodge product is working for our founder, it's giving them insight. At times, it's even magical for the chefs. They'd love an ingredient, and boom, they have it. That was supposed to be the point of last week's episode, that the real work doesn't start until you're in the mix, solving problems and seeing feedback loops firsthand. That is when you can start wiggling, wedging into the important places, solving the urgent problems. I was hoping to lower the barriers to entry for that first wiggle, the true dance of the entrepreneur. Let's see how it went. Exactly 11 people emailed immediately after the episode, saying this was the motivation that they needed. They'd be building a first version of their product over the weekend. They'd have customers by Monday. I'd just given a talk at Columbia Business School earlier that week, and a few of the emails were from students, smart, competent, driven people. I responded to all 11 on Monday, asking how the weekend product build went. I was curious to do a follow-up episode on hurdles they ran into with customers. Guess how many had actually built something? Zero. There are two main drivers of human action. First, inertia. What you did yesterday is usually what you're going to do today. And second, avoiding discomfort. We will mortgage our future to remove even slight discomfort in the present. We're emotional, not rational. Reflecting on last week's episode made it clear we talked about changing inertia by releasing a product and diving into something wildly uncomfortable by interacting with customers without a clear, reliable plan. Of course no one did it. It was too hard. So today, we'll help with the real reasons people usually don't get anywhere with their business. We'll talk about how the food sourcing startup overcame these obstacles, how most of our best startups do. And then, this weekend, you'll get that first version of your product built. You better. If this doesn't work, I'm not sure what else to try. Plan versus freestyle, the things that matter and the things that don't, and how to lean into discomfort. After, a word 
from some friends of ours. This episode of Idea to Start a Podcast is brought to you by our good friends at Build. That's B-Y-L-D-D dot com. They're a development agency that helps early stage startups build and launch scalable, revenue generating software businesses. Development from non-technical founders and teams without a tech person on them is the massive elephant in the room that just sits there judging you while you run all of your customer work and intent tests. And once you've validated your idea and you know that customers want what you've decided to build, you've got to figure out how to build it. That's where things get sticky. You probably don't have 100K to throw at a huge creative agency. And even if you did for your first product, you probably shouldn't. You might roll the dice on Upwork and it might work, but you'll need to project manage the whole thing. The cost will be a black box, and I cannot stress enough the might in that first sentence. For 10K and roughly a month of work, Build will get your validated product up and out. Head to build.com to talk to Ayush. That's B-Y-L-D-D.com and tell him you heard about it through Idea to Startup. Back to it. Plan versus freestyle. The way you'll surface an interesting business will be messy. It won't be a straight line, and it would have been impossible to plan for ahead of time. If a plan could have been made from the sidelines, someone would have made it. Markets are efficient. There's no obvious, straightforward opportunity out there. You've got to wiggle. The way most people build products outside the startup world, where the customer need is predictable and you're just iterating on something that already exists, is like this. First, figure out what you want to build. Market research, competitive analysis instincts. Second, figure out how to build it. Budget, team, materials. And third, figure out how to market it. Launch plan, design assets, and copy. This works great if you're making version 14 of an iPhone with iterative tweaks or adding another layer of a service to a consulting practice. This works horribly if you're trying to build something new. So maybe a decade ago, people realized the right way to build startups was to flip this approach around. Now, it looks like this. First, market to people to make sure you can find them and that they care. Second, build something flimsy and unscalable to ensure we can solve the problem and that solving the problem actually matters. And third, figure out how to build that thing at scale. If you listen to this pod, you're probably nodding vigorously. Everything is downstream of step one, finding people and getting their attention. So do that first. Building something that's flexible and easy to iterate on is step two. Make sure the thing works before you heavily invest in it. Only invest in the whole thing deeply at step three once you are sure you can find people and help them jump status levels. But again, this flip gets rid of those old trusty plans. We'll do this, then we'll do this, then this will happen and we'll be successful is just not a thing. The startup process is ambiguous. You'll wiggle around in the marketing stage until you find the magic and fleeting balance of customer and need and channel and urgency. You'll then wiggle around the flimsy product phase until you help a customer be successful. And then finally, you can put in place your plan to build the product in a scalable way. But that is after months or years of wiggling. And humans hate wiggling. It's uncomfortable and it's scary. And we love plans, even if they make no sense. So we make silly plans and follow them. And they don't go anywhere because, again, you can't plan for this stuff from the comfort of your studio apartment. But it's better than feeling like you have no plan. That is horribly uncomfortable. I read an article the other day that referenced a study on people's financial habits. 
One of the findings was that to alleviate financial stress, households would often splurge on items they wouldn't buy if they weren't financially stressed, meaning impulse spending actually increased with the qualitative measure of financial stress rather than decreased. To avoid the immediate discomfort of not having enough money, people will go into debt to buy things that signal to themselves that they aren't in any immediate financial trouble. Founders of startups do something similar. In the absence of a plan, they overinvest or overstate how important things that aren't important are just to have a grasp on something. This is a disaster, and we're going to talk about it now. The things that matter and the things that don't. Back to the people who said they'd build a product over the weekend and then didn't. There were a few reasons they weren't able to, but one popped up in nearly every email they sent me. So I figured we'd touch on it. Here is a direct quote. I know lots of people can have a first product that isn't professionally designed, but my customer expects and only responds to a certain level of aesthetic. I simply can't build something that doesn't look incredible, even if it's a first product. My friends all agreed. I can't just put something out there. We need it to be a certain quality level. There are a few things to unpack here. First, I'll say that in our experience, hundreds, maybe thousands at this point of companies running early product tests, not once has design held anyone back. It's kind of a tricky thing to track because theoretically there could have been someone who saw a website and said, meh, that thing's so ugly, I don't trust them and moved on. But we've had fashion companies be successful with websites using all text. We've had B2B companies be successful with clip art. We've had companies sell with an email and no website at all. Way more commonly though, people have just made their website or brand or whatever it is you're showing to a customer look good enough in a short amount of time. Most founders have an aesthetic in mind they'd like to match, which means that aesthetic is a commodity. You can go on Squarespace or any other website builder and use a template that matches just about any aesthetic you'd like. Just don't mess with the template and it'll look great. Or you can hire someone off of Upwork or from a master's program at a visual design school and for a couple of hundred dollars and a few days of work, you'll have something perfectly workable. If design is not your differentiator, then it is a commodity. For any commodity, the variable you're optimizing for as an entrepreneur is speed. Commodities don't matter. Ignore them altogether or get them done fast and move on. Founders spend an enormous amount of time on commodities. Don't spend zero time on them. If design is your differentiator, then that's different. It's got to be in-house. You have to be able to brute force your differentiator early on. The real deeper problem here is probably what I call a mirror problem. Founders think that every second of the product is a direct reflection on them. If a website isn't beautiful, their friends and family and acquaintances will look at it and think they're a fraud. The physical or digital representation of their first product is a direct reflection on whether them doing this whole risky startup thing was a good idea or not. This is a tough one because everyone feels it. The way I help our founders get through it is to remember three things. First, it's rare anyone ever actually thinks about you at all. We're all running around thinking of ourselves and assuming everyone else is thinking about us too, and it's just not the case. If anyone even noticed that you had a startup or had a website for that startup, they probably just thought, huh, wonder if that's working and moved on to whatever their problem of the moment was. Second, the product is for the customer and it's about the customer. 
No one's opinion matters but them. And until you work directly with them, you won't get their opinion. Optimize for speed to get to that moment. And always remember, this isn't about you. It's about them. And finally, the mantra of any early stage entrepreneur, discomfort equals growth. Whenever you do something that makes you uncomfortable, you're probably on the right track. Because as we talked about earlier, people will do backflips to avoid discomfort, which means the place you're going, most people are never going to follow. If you're uncomfortable, lean into it. You're on the right track, or at least one that you're alone on. Think about how great it'd be to not care about what anyone else thought about your startup aside from your customers. How freeing that would be. It's an option. Discomfort equals growth and no one cares about you. That is the anthem, and probably should have been the title of the episode, but it's a little aggressive. The other part of the quote from the person who didn't build last weekend that's important and is kind of bugging me a little bit is around the quality the customer demands. I hear this a ton. Things like, we can't do stuff manually. We need a real product before we go to customers or they won't give us the time of day. This deserves its own story. It's a quick one, but it's worth telling. I met with a college kid this past week who's been working on a small business that helps fraternities run charity events. I loved this. It countered a lot of people's thoughts on fraternities and made me feel good about people in general. Then he told me where the idea came from. Quote, it all started because my college requires frats to do a certain number of charity hours each semester or they're going to kick us off campus. My first thought was probably the same as yours. Gross. This thing that I thought was driven by some good kids with good hearts was actually driven by kids that just wanted to keep staying on campus and doing frat things. Then I climbed down off my high horse and I realized that I haven't started any philanthropic companies lately. And much more importantly, this is a great reminder of the power of negative incentives. When I worked in corporate venture, we were constantly looking for businesses that jumped on the back of new regulations. One of our fastest growing companies was successful because new regulations for novel types of neurotransmitters required them to report certain types of data they weren't already reporting. The startup helped the companies comply and stay in business. It wasn't that the companies wanted to comply, they literally had to. It's a good exercise though. Do any potential customers have absolutely no choice when it comes to the problem you're solving? Who aggressively loses something if they don't plug the leak? You're going to lose X if you don't is often a much stronger sell than you'll gain Y if you do. When you're thinking of these sorts of early products, think about it like a seesaw. On one side is the quality of product you need, and on the other is the urgency of the customer. If your customer doesn't have a ton of urgency, you'll need to beef up the quality of the product because they'll have time to inspect it. They'll have other options. They're comparing to you. They might not even need to make a decision on you for months. But if the customer is going to lose something imminently, all the trappings of the product matter way less. So you can take pride in a product that has an objectively low level of quality. When someone asks you if you have a website and you don't, you can say, we literally don't have time to make a website because our customer just needs us to help them. Or if your website's ugly, say you didn't have time to get a designer and none of your customers care because they've got bigger problems than what your logo looks like. The less impressive your product looks, the more impressive it often is because you've found a real need. People trust you solely because you realize that they have a problem and they want you to help them solve it. Which brings us back to our food founder and the wiggling dance of the entrepreneur. 
A month or so into his manual product helping chefs find ingredients, our founder got a call from one of his very first customers. We need help and we need it now, they said. We've been hired to cater a wedding. We don't normally do this, but the money was great and we've been thinking about getting into it. The event is this weekend and our supplier just told us they don't have any of the fish that we need. We literally need 80 servings of this fish by Saturday. Can you help us? We'll pay you upfront with your fee. Just let us know when you can get it. Our founder pulled it off and a few days later, the chef reached out again. We're thinking about getting into some more event catering, he said. A lot of restaurants are. It's easier to scale up and down staff than it ever has been, and it seems like there are more of these private events where the host wants specific restaurants cooking for them. Our supplier just isn't good for this type of thing. Do you think you could handle it for us? Wiggling landed him in a pretty interesting niche. But I remember his earliest days, which is why he is the focus of this episode. Not surprisingly, he was initially nervous to email a bunch of chefs. He had a bunch of the questions people email me about. Things like, what if I promise them I can get them fish and I can't? Or what if they aren't interested? Or what if this just isn't a problem? These are the types of questions you'll have and the types of things your first product will help you figure out. But they're also the types of things that keep you from ever making that first product. So here's how we talk through it with that entrepreneur. If you can't get them fish, I said, you'll tell them as soon as possible, but more than likely you're going to figure out how to get it done for them. That is why this first version is always manual. You brute force it, then decide if you want to ever do it again and see if it's actually scalable. And to answer the second two questions, what if they aren't interested and what if this isn't a problem? Great. We want to know that as soon as humanly possible so that we can tweak the value or the customer or just move on altogether. After chatting through this, he still was a little bit hesitant. Sometimes you just need a kick. So he drafted the email to the chefs, hired someone off of Fiverr to find 150 chef emails, then gave them the copy and told them to email the group for him. The following week, he had 10 calls with chefs, which led to five orders for food, and he had to figure them out, and he did. Lean into discomfort or solve it through something like outsourcing, but don't let it beat you. The recipe. Your plan won't last past your first customer interaction. Your first product will be embarrassing. You'll oscillate between thinking you're onto something huge and confident that you're wasting your time. You'll wiggle and eventually you'll hopefully get somewhere. And that is all part of it. That is the plan. Always remember, discomfort equals growth. Now, get wiggling. This was the Idea to Startup podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. If you've got a startup idea and a full-time job and want to test out the former before you leave the latter, come work with us. Apply at gettacklebox.com. We'll get back to you in 72 hours and we'll be working together by the weekend. Have a great week.